This is your world, our Father, and we long for the day when earth and heaven will be one. But we thank you that as we await that great day, as we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, you have given us good work to do, good truth to believe. And Lord, we thank you for accomplishing our redemption through the fulfillment of the Exodus in the death and resurrection of our King. Lord, we praise you that the Lord Jesus is seated at your right hand where he will remain until all his enemies are under his feet. And Father, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would use your word to give us wisdom and that we would be people who embrace the discipline that our Father brings into our lives. Lord, we pray that you would transform us by means of your word. We pray that you would make us people who are pure in heart, devoted entirely to you, people whose reckonings of years and determinations of justice are informed by your righteous and holy character. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we pray that you would bless us now as we come to you. We pray that you would teach us your word and that it would make us new, that it would give us life, that it would teach us how to live. Most of all, Lord, we pray that you would make us love you and love one another. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus 21, and you know that we started into Exodus 21 from the end of Exodus 20 last week, and we did not get as far as I was hoping we would, and it's a really good thing that we didn't, uh, because in the extra time that I had to study this passage, um, the Lord just brought things together for me. It's interesting, well, I'll get into that in a moment. Um, let me say again, as I said last week, what you worship determines how you live. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Exodus. Uh, the people of Israel are being told that they are to worship Yahweh alone. Uh, Yahweh being the name that the Lord revealed of himself. At least that's how we think it might have been pronounced. Um, he revealed his name to Moses. And uh, because of who he is, he gives to Israel these commandments. And, and before we look into this book of the covenant that we're going to study uh, this morning, which I take that phrase, which is the title of this sermon, the book of the covenant, from the reference in Exodus 24, 7, where Moses has been told in Exodus 24, 4, um, I, I'm sorry, um, he, he, he relates in Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then in 24-7, it says that Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And I take it that what we're, what we're studying here from the Ten Commandments through the end of Exodus 23 is probably this book of the covenant which Moses read to the people from, or at, at Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and before we look into this book of the covenant and consider what it teaches Israel, let's just marvel for a moment at our God and, and, and be amazed 
at the story in the book of Exodus. It is an amazing story. These people are not a nation. The people of Israel, are, they're, they're slaves. They are slaves in Egypt to the superpower of the day. And Moses is not Moses. I mean, he's, he's, yes, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, but he, he killed someone, and then he fled into the wilderness, and he's nobody. He's just a shepherd. And God appears to him at Mount Horeb, and tells him to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And God appearing to Moses made Moses who he was. In the same way that when, after God defeated Egypt through the ten plagues, and then he brings Israel through the Red Sea, and then he defeats the wilderness by providing manna from heaven and water from the rock, and then the Lord appears to Israel at Mount Sinai, and in the same way that God appearing to Moses made him Moses, God appearing to Israel made them Israel. It was God that made these his people. It was God who equipped Moses for this work. And brothers and sisters, we have been given this great commission by the Lord Jesus to go and make disciples. We're nothing, as you know. We're nobody. But the Lord appears to us, and the Lord speaks to us in his word. And it's God and God's transformative word that will make us who he would have us be. So, as you know, God came down on Mount Sinai and he spoke the ten words to Israel. And, and then the people basically say to Moses, we can't have any more of this. If he keeps talking to us, it will kill us. So they say to Moses, you go get the instructions and you bring them back to us and we will do everything that he says. And the Lord says, they're right. And so Moses goes up the mountain, and the people stand far off, and then the Lord starts talking to Moses. And in this book of the covenant that starts, I think, in Exodus 20, verse 22, and runs through the end of chapter 23, in this book of the covenant, what we have is the exposition of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments were articulated in Exodus 20. God came down on Mount Sinai. He spoke the Ten Commandments. And, and now in, in this ensuing instruction, at the end of chapter 20 through, through chapter 23, it's like the Lord gives an initial deposit that explains the Ten Commandments. And, and so I just want to highlight, I'm going to walk through the Ten Commandments and just highlight statements in this uh, instruction that, that flesh this out. So for instance... The first commandment is that Israel is to have no other gods before the Lord. Look at Exodus 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Okay, so this is just expositing that first commandment, no other gods. The second commandment, they're not to take the name of the Lord their God in vain. And we saw last week how in 2024... The Lord referenced to all the places where he caused his name to be remembered. And then he's going to tell them in 2321 that he's going to send this angel before them to prepare the way. And in 2321, he tells them, my name is in him, in the angel. So they're not to take the name of the Lord in vain, and the Lord's name will be remembered among them. And then look also at uh, 2228, you shall not revile God. And I think this also pertains to not taking the name of the Lord in vain. The third commandment 
is to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And we saw last week how in 21, 1 through 11, when they come around to the seventh year, the slaves are released. So the seventh year release year is an exposition of the, the command to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, as is the instruction at the end of this unit in 23, uh, 10 and following, they're going to get instructions about, about the seventh year and the land lying fallow, and also about the seventh day, and also about the yearly feasts. So these, these things that pertain to their calendar, when, when they take a break from work altogether for a year, and, and how they rest every seventh day, and then the three yearly feasts, that all exposits uh, the command to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, the, the, the fourth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother. Look at 21.17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And, and then there are going to be other things that pertain to authorities in their lives, such as what we just saw in 22.28, where it says you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And that reference to not cursing a ruler of the people is also fleshing out the command to honor father and mother. And then... Then we, then we run through the six that we might call people rules, how you treat other people. So uh, the fifth one, uh, you shall not murder. Look at 21.14. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So death penalty for murderers. Um, and then adultery, uh, uh, the sixth commandment. And then look at, look at 22.16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So there's exposition of instruction pertaining to um, prohibited sexual relations. Um, then the command not to steal. We're going to see in 22, 1 through 4, the exposition of this command. And then uh, the command not to bear false witness in 23, 1 through 7. We have a lot about not bearing false witness. And then the last two about coveting houses and coveting wives, I think they really run through all the others because it's coveting a house that's going to lead to stealing. It's coveting a wife that's going to lead to adultery. And as these, as these things are addressed, uh, the, the, the instruction becomes plain. So uh, what we have here in this book of the covenant exposits the Ten Commandments. And let me give you a takeaway point here that's going to be so apparent and I think so important for understanding what's going on here in this instruction. Cultures are defined by what they refuse to tolerate. Cultures are defined by what they refuse to tolerate. I learned this from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And as we move through these instructions, they're going to refuse to tolerate, for instance, striking father and mother. Look at 21.15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is a culture that is committed to honoring parents. And so they refuse to tolerate dishonoring parents. And, and then we could say this about the other things that are going to result in the death penalty as we go through here. So the, this book of the covenant is teaching Israel what the commandments do and do not mean. As we'll see, we're going to go into some cases where they're going to say, okay, this constitutes murder, but this other 
instance of manslaughter doesn't constitute murder. So the commandments are being explained. And we're also going to see that obedience to all this instruction, the heart that produces obedience to all this instruction is love for God and love for neighbor. And what that means is that the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it really guides all the people rules. All the people rules can be traced back to the golden rule. Love others and treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Okay, now, I think we might have a slide here. And, and this takes me to um, what I was going to say a moment ago. Last week, standing here in worship, singing a song, I had a thought. Because, you know, last week I was planning to do all of Exodus 21. And once we get past verses 1 through 11, it feels like we just have a jumble of instructions. It, I mean, it feels like there's just instruction after instruction after instruction. And I thought to myself as I stood there and sang, I wonder how many of those instructions there are. And, and then I went back and counted how many uh, of these instructions are worded a particular way. And you can see uh, we looked at Exodus 20, 22, 22 through 26 last week, the instruction about worshiping the Lord by means of altars. And then we also looked at 21, 1 through 11, the seventh year of release last week. Um, and, and then... Then next you have 21, 12 through 17, which we'll look at in just a moment. Um, then come the jumble of instructions. And what's interesting is that there are exactly 14 when or if statements. Now, they could translate all these the same. And I think they should have translated all 14 of these the same uh, because uh, I think it, it starts confusing things when they, when they substitute if in chapter 22. But we'll, we'll look at some of these. Um, What's the significance of there being 14? Well, uh, 14 is two sets of seven. And you can't cover every possible um, scenario. And so what Moses has done is he's given us two sets of seven representative sets of scenarios. And then the assumption is that the Israelites will then reason from these examples to the other conclusions that they're going to need to draw as they as they work through various issues. And then you're going to have another set of things that result in the death penalty, followed by, um, at the, at, look, at, look at 2221, um, you shall not wrong, wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And look, look over at 23.9, you shall not oppress a sojourner, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now. Uh, when you see the Bible repeat itself like that, you should think, oh, that's probably intentional. And it is. It is intentional. Moses has bracketed a set of 14 you shall not statements between the, ref the statement about sojourners in 22.21 and the statement about sojourners in 23.9. Okay? So there are 14 when if statements and then there are 14 you shall not statements. And then we go back to seventh year of release, and then we go back to uh, the exclusive, exclusive worship of the Lord in the land. So this is a carefully structured and, and well-balanced piece of instruction. And so uh, with this structure in mind, we can find our way through, and we can recognize that, that framing the whole thing is this command that basically amounts to love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what this stuff about no altars or no, none of these forbidden altars, none of these practices that the Canaanites engage in, and then none of these Canaanite gods. Don't do as they do, as he'll say at the end. And then within that, uh, the instruction about the, the seventh year of release and the, the, the yearly patterns of feasts and the weekly patterns, all of this is saying order your whole life in accordance with God's instruction. Think about your, your days and your weeks and your months and your years in terms of God's instructions. Live out what God is calling you to do in the days of your life. And then in the middle, we have all this exposition of the Ten Commandments, but it's well-balanced. Starts with death penalty infractions, moves to 14 uh, cases, some more death penalty infractions, and then 14 things they must not do. So um, one, one last statement. Well, let me, I'll skip over that, and we'll come back to it in a moment. Let's drop in now at 2112, which is where we had gotten to. Uh, last week, we looked at... Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, the instruction about altars. And then we looked at the year of release in 21, 1 through 11. And this brings us to 21, 12 through 17, where we have these infractions that result in the death penalty. And these, uh, these, the wording of these commandments, you'll notice how 21, 12 says, whoever strikes a man. Now, this may look to us like, something like 2126 when it says when a man strikes the eye, but it's worded entirely differently. Uh, it, and, and so Moses has set off the, the units of the passage by wording things differently for us. So 2112 is obviously expositing the commandment, you shall not murder. 2112, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now, we know that sometimes in the course of this fallen world, people accidentally hit others and bring about their death. But they weren't, they weren't in a premeditated way, setting out to kill that person. So that case is now taken up in verse 13. If he did not lie in wait for him, meaning he wasn't, he wasn't waiting on the guy to show up so that he could kill him, but God let him fall into his hand. This is a way of saying just in the, in the outworking of God's providence over the world, this happened. Then, Moses writes, the Lord says, I will appoint a place to which he may flee. Later in the Pentateuch, we're going to learn about these cities of refuge, which basically amount to prisons. So that if you've committed a crime, like you've, you've done this, you killed somebody, but it wasn't premeditated, you can flee to a city of refuge, and as long as you stay within the boundary of that city, within the walls of that city, an avenger of blood can't strike you dead. So it's like you're in prison. But if you go outside the walls of that city and the avenger of blood finds you, then you can be, your life can be forfeit. Verse 14, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar. Now this is referring to the, the practice whereby uh, somebody that commits a crime might flee to the altar and lay hold of the horns of the altar seeking mercy. And what's being said here is, if, if they intentionally committed a murder, even if they're at the altar seeking mercy, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. He is to be put to death. Justice is to be upheld. As, as we move through these laws, what we're, what we're going to sense, and I, think, I hope you, you begin to feel this as we see the, the justice and the proportionality 
and the, the righteousness of these laws, what, what, what we begin to sense is that discipline produces freedom. Discipline produces freedom. In other words, if you enforce these penalties, people are going to be safe because murders will know. I better, not, I better not go commit a murder. I'll die. And so the murder will be discouraged. And as a result, the people will be free and they'll be safe. Look at uh, 21.15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. So zero tolerance for this. 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and then in my opinion, the ESV um, well, let me put it this way. Every other English translation except the ESV renders the next clause, and he is found in his hand, meaning the stolen person is found in the hand of the person who stole him. The ESV is the only translation that renders it, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, so the difference is the ESV is saying um, if somebody kidnap somebody to put them in slavery, whoever else is found with that kidnapped person also dies. But no other translation takes it that way. Every other translation takes it that only the man-stealer dies, whether he's already sold the person or whether he's caught while he still has the person. It's the man-stealer who dies. So I think the, the other translations are, are more likely correct than the ESV here. At any rate, what, what's the upshot of this going to be? No man-stealing, no, which creates freedom, doesn't it? Discipline results in freedom because you know in Israel I'm not going to be kidnapped and sold into slavery. Verse 17. Now we know that wicked things happen, right? Uh, Joseph got sold into slavery. That was before the giving of the law. There's a lot we could say about that. Let's keep moving. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So again, they are to honor their fathers and their mothers. These death penalty cases, it's almost like they function like a punctuation mark after the stuff about the year of release and before these 14 when and if statements that follow that start in 2118. Um, these, these first four of these, uh, the first four of, these, of the first seven, um, they deal with... Uh, People doing violence to one another. So 21, 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So again, this is not a premeditated murder. This is a fight that breaks out among two people. And, and this is adjudicating how, how you deal with that kind of case. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged, which I think means the slave owner is to die. The slave's life is to be avenged. Verse 21, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money, meaning... The, the slave owner has a financial investment in the, in the life of the slave and the striking did not bring about the death of the, the slave and the, the, the financial loss of the slave is the punishment to the slave owner in this case. In both cases, 
what's the upshot of the law? The upshot of the law is slave owners are not to be killing their slaves and they're not to be striking their slaves so that they do damage to their own, their own uh, property. This is, this is what's being taught here. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so these kinds of things happen in a fallen world, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, and I think what this means is if the child dies, so pregnant woman gets caught up in the tussle, the child is born prematurely but lives, there's a fine. If the child dies, and here's where we get the, uh, these uh, eye for eye type statements, if there is harm, verse 23, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. These, these kinds of statements, they may initially strike us as severe and as vicious. I want to suggest to you that they're actually rest restraining. They, they restrict the amount of vengeance someone can exact. They set limits on how someone can respond to an injury like this. And again, discipline results in freedom. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he, snock, if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So again, if you do physical damage in this way, you, you maim or harm someone, uh, they, they are allowed to be released. It, let me just insert a caveat here. If you're concerned about slavery in the Bible, I'd love to talk with you about that afterwards. Or you can go back and listen to last week's sermon where we dealt with slavery in 21, 1 through 11. Um, let me just note again, there's no slavery in the Garden of Eden. There's no slavery in the new heavens and new earth. God is putting uh, constraints and limits around wicked human practices, and he's also building in a kind of welfare system and setting parameters for it for Israel. And all of these Instructions about slavery are governed by the Ten Commandments. There's a lot more that we can say. I want to keep moving. So those first four, you notice how they deal with violence done to or by humans, to or by other humans. These next three are almost like the case that uh, my son recently tried with uh, his, his uh, challenge program. It was a case where the question was, was this uh, general contractor of a construction company responsible for deaths that occurred on his job site? That's the kind of thing that you have here in verse 28. It's a question of responsibility for something that you own that does damage to other people. So verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So if an ox kills somebody, the ox dies, but the, and the owner of the ox, he's disciplined or punished just by the loss of his, his animal. Verse 29, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned and has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So he's responsible because this animal was doing this kind of thing, and he didn't he didn't do anything to keep it from happening. Verse 30, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. 
If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So this is where we get the idea that the redemption price of slaves in Israel is 30 pieces of silver. And this, this is going to recur over in Zechariah 11, when Zechariah, the prophet, becomes shepherd over the people of Israel, and they hate him, and they reject him, and they buy him off for 30 shekels of silver. And that pattern is going to be fulfilled when they treat the Lord Jesus as a slave, and, they, and Judah sells him for 30 shekels of silver. So uh, the Lord Jesus entered into our world, and he was treated, he was mistreated, and he accomplished our redemption by, um, by suffering at the hands of sinners. Um, the, the next case, so we got oxen in verses 29 through 32. The next case uh, deals with uh, if you open a pit, and there are various reasons an Israelite might open a pit. This is one of the ways that they set traps in the ancient world. Uh, maybe you've seen a movie. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was Swiss Family Robinson or something like that where they trapped a tiger uh, in a pit. You know, they, you dig a big hole and you, you try to entice the big animal over the hole and they fall in. And, so verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, somebody's work animal, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. The seventh case, verse 35, when one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. So you got seven represent, representative cases. Now, when we start into verse, chapter 22, the ESV starts rendering these same grammatical constructions if. I wish they had stuck with when, because look at verse 2. If a thief, that's a different um, construction. And so I wish they had kept verse 1, when a man steals an ox or a sheep, which we're moving, aren't we? We've moved out of things that pertain to murder, now into things that pertain to theft. So when a man steals an ox or a sheep, 22.1, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And you might think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound fair. He stole one. He's got to repay five. Yes. This is intended to keep theft from happening. It's, it's disincentivizing theft. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies... There shall be no blood guilt for him. Verse 3, but if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Okay, so the idea is if, if I'm at home and it's dark outside and somebody breaks into my house, I don't know if they're just trying to steal something or if they're trying to do violence to my family. So if I use deadly force, no blood guilt. But if it's daylight, I should be able to discern, is this person just trying to steal from me or is this tr person trying to kill me? So if it's daylight and I kill him, there's blood guilt. In the middle of verse 3, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. I think this is talking about the thief. The thief is to be sold for his theft. Verse 4, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, 
he shall pay double. Next instance, uh, the second of the second set of seven, verse five, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So this is a form of theft. You, you put your cows out in your neighbor's pasture and your cows eat up all your neighbor's hay. That's theft. And, and you, you have to pay it back. Verse six, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Verse seven, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So they're determining whether or not uh, the, the person to whom the stuff was entrusted was in league with the thief. Verse 9, for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God, the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Um, that, that kind of case that we just saw in verses 7 through 9 is really repeated in verses 10 and following. So I'm going to pass over that. Um, I'm going to skip down to verse 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So in other words, if I borrow someone and the guy, is, the guy from whom I borrowed is with me and the, owner, and the animal dies, uh, with the owner there, then I'm not liable. The owner should have objected to what I was doing that brought about perhaps the death of the animal. And then I already read verses 16 and 17 about seduction of an unmarried woman and how there's to be uh, compensation made for that. That brings us to verses 18 through 20, which are our, our second set of death penalty infractions. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Death penalty for a sorceress. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And then I already read verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Cultures are defined by what they refuse to tolerate. Now that brings us uh, in verse 21. I, I noted how 22.21 corresponds to 23.9. And there are 14 you shall not statements uh, in this section. And again, these are expositions of the Ten Commandments. So 22:21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You can hear the appeal to the golden rule there, can't you? You didn't like being oppressed when you were a sojourner, so don't oppress sojourners in your land. Verse 23, uh, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And then there's this warning. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Which again, you can hear, if you die, you don't want your widowed wife or your fatherless child mistreated. So don't do that to others. I'm going to pass over uh, the money lending in verse 25 and following. You shall not exact interest. And, and I already read verse 28. Uh, I, I want to skip down to 20, chapter 23. 
So 23.1. You shall not spread a false report. So not bearing false witness. Um, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. This is warning against a situation where public opinion becomes so entrenched that it goes against the truth. And a witness who knows what the truth is and knows what public opinion is is not supposed to side with public opinion at the expense of truth. Look at verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. In other words, you're not supposed to help somebody in their lawsuit just because they're disadvantaged, just because they're poor. With that in mind, look down at verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. In other words, you don't take advantage of poor people just because they're poor. You don't help them because they're poor. You don't take advantage of them because they're poor. What do you do? You give them justice. You do the truth. Uh, continuing there in verse 7, keep far from a false charge, false witness. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So these, these 14 you shall nots, they're expositing the Ten Commandments. They're giving Israel a, a, a taste for how they reason through the various difficulties they're going to face in their lives. And that brings us back around to the, the year of release, the seventh year. And what we find when we get to 2310, I mean, I remember the first time I read through the Old Testament and I encountered this instruction. Let me, let me read this. Exodus 23, 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. I mean, I can remember being a high school student, my junior year of high school, I read through the Bible for the first time in my life, and I hit this instruction about the sabbatical year, and I thought to myself, that's crazy. They're not supposed to work in the seventh year? They're farmers, and they're not supposed to, as Leviticus will say, they're not supposed to sow their land, they're not supposed to gather in the harvest, they're, they're not supposed to do anything? And what this really presses in is that the law has to be kept by faith. The law has to be kept by faith. The, the book of Leviticus will explain, the Lord's going to say, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? And Moses says, the Lord will make the, the crop of the sixth year abound so that you will still be eating the crop of the sixth year when the eighth year comes and you start working the land again. Well, they're going to have to take that by faith, aren't they? They're going to have to believe that it is better for them not to work the land than it is for them to work the land. The law of Moses, God's instruction to Israel, has to be kept by faith. You can't just check boxes. If you're checking boxes, you'll find a way to get out there and put seed in the field. And you'll find a way to get out there and harvest that field, even though you're not really supposed to be harvesting it after the seventh year. The law has to be kept by faith. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. 
And that brings us to verse 13, where he says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. That, that line, pay attention to all that I have said to you, an alternative way of translating that line could, could lead to the translation, and with all that I have said to you, you will be kept. With all that I have said to you, you will be kept. In other words, God is saying, my words are going to protect you and bless you. Uh, then we get the feasts in verses 14, really verses 14 through 19 pertain to the feasts. They're these three great feasts that they're to keep every year. We know them as the Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. They're referred to slightly differently here. Um, you, might, you might think to yourself, why does Exodus 23, 19 end with the words, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? Well, interestingly, in 34, 26, Exodus 34, 26, you have another collection of laws that is concluded with that line. So that line is like a punctuation mark that concludes a section of, of, of laws. What's that law about? Well, when you boil the young goat, you're killing the young goat, and it, it's a principle of not mixing life with death. So you don't, you don't mix the milk of its mother, which is to give it life, with the boiling that is to bring about its death. You, you keep death and life separate, so you don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And that brings us to the end of this section, 23, 20 through 33, which is just a remarkable passage. The reason, maybe you were wondering, why did we read Malachi 3 and Mark chapter 1 today? Well, the reason is because of what verse 20 says. Exodus 23, 20, the Lord says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. Now, they've come out of Egypt, and they're on the way to the land of promise. Malachi is prophesying at a time when they have returned to the land physically, but they haven't really retaken the land. They haven't really established the kingdom of God in the land. And Malachi, the Lord says, I send my messenger, another word for angel, before your face. He shall prepare the way before me. And, and so Malachi is alluding to Exodus 23, and the Lord is saying in Malachi, I'm coming back. And in the same way that I sent a messenger to lead you to the land of promise after the exodus, so now I'm going to send a messenger and he's going to prepare the way for my return. And then Mark opens, the gospel of Mark opens um, with, a, with a reference to Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1 and with Mark identifying John the Baptist as the messenger who is preparing the way before me, Malachi 3.1, the Lord Jesus. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying here? God himself has come in the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist is the prophesied messenger who was sent to prepare the way before him. And so uh, the, what's, what's said here in Exodus 23.20 is really setting up what we'll see in the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. And then look at, look at 23.20 again. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. I wonder if that causes any bells to ring in your mind. Maybe somebody who said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
I mean, I think that Jesus in John 14, verse 2, is alluding to this passage. And in the same way that this, this angel is going before Israel to the land of promise, Jesus is going before his disciples to prepare the new heavens and new earth, which is the fulfillment of the land of promise for, for his people, for us. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him, this angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So remember in 20, 22 through 26, in verse 24, the Lord said, I will cause my name to be remembered. And now he's saying, I've put my name in this angel. This angel, I think, represents the Lord himself. And then in verse 22, I think there's an allusion to Genesis 3.15. Remember Genesis 3.15, the Lord said uh, to the serpent, I'm, I put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice, the voice of the angel, and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going to be with you against the seed of the serpent if you listen to my, what I'm revealing to you through this angel. Which, by the way, this idea that, that God is speaking through this angel uh, is really reflected a number of places in the New Testament that speak of God giving the law to Israel by means of an angelic intermediary. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, which by the way, those are the seed of the serpent, the enemies of God that inhabit the land of Canaan. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars. Don't miss this in context. God is saying to Israel, don't worship gods that I'm going to defeat. Because in this world, when, when one people defeats another people, that represents their God defeating the gods of the defeated peoples. And so God is saying to Israel, basically, I'm going to overcome the Canaanites and the gods of Canaan. So don't go worshiping those defeated gods. That, that I have victory over. He says to them in verse 24, you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And then it's like the Lord says, you serve the Lord and, and the Lord is going to make the blessing of Abraham your experience. Remember the Lord promised to Abraham land, seed, and, and blessing. And he says here, you shall serve the Lord your God, verse 25, and he will bless your bread and your water. It's almost like manna from heaven, water from the rock. And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. Seed, offspring. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And then in this next line... In, in verse 27, that reads, I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. There's an allusion to the blessing of Judah in Genesis 49.8. In Genesis 49.8, Jacob said of Judah uh, that the Lord would give to Judah his enemies' necks. And that's what the text, that's what the, 
the text literally says here, but the translator has interpreted it to mean that the giving of the next means the enemies are going to turn and flee from before them. But, but there's, a, there's an allusion here to the blessing of Judah, which means that the blessing of Abraham, land seed blessing, is going to come through the king from Judah's line, Genesis 49, 8. In fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Back in verse 22. In verse 28, I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the, Hiv and the Hittites from before you. And then it's like the Lord says, but you're going to need to trust me. You're going to need to trust me. Verse 29. I will not drive them out before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So, so little by little, trusting the Lord, persevering in obedience, and, and, and not, not uh, leaning on their own understanding, but trusting in him completely, right? Their own understanding might say, well, Lord, why don't you just wipe out all those Canaanites all at once? And the Lord is wise, and the Lord says, I'm not going to do that because the wild beasts would multiply and take over. You, would, you wouldn't be able to handle the land. So you're going to need to trust me. You're going to need to persevere in discipline. You're going to need to persevere in faithfulness. And then he gives them the, the, the parameters of the land in verse 31, verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And you know, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, and you read, for instance, the book of Judges, in various cases, they, they did not heed the voice of the angel that the Lord sent, and the, they did not destroy the idols of the land, and, and we'll read in those, in those cases, it became a snare to the people of Israel. And that later biblical author is hearkening back to this passage. So what do we, what do we take away from this? Well, let me, let me run back through some statements that I've made that I think are the big, idea, big ideas that we should take away. I've said this several times. Cultures are defined by what they refuse to tolerate. Number one. Number two, the book of the covenant, this whole passage, chapters 20 through 23, teaches Israel what the Ten Commandments do and do not mean. And then maybe this is the most, the most important takeaway for us. Discipline produces freedom. Listen to what the Lord, how the Lord himself summarizes this, this teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse, verse 5. Moses says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God is their father, and he is disciplining them as a father disciplines his children, which sounds like Proverbs 3, doesn't it? That's exactly what Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 say. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And the author of Hebrews picks this up and he speaks of how the difficulties that, that Christians face 
the, 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 the difficulties that we encounter. He says in Hebrews 12, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is giving to Israel justice. He's giving them a, a standard of righteousness. And it's, it's really a, a glorious and true and good law. A law that the Lord Jesus fulfills because, because Israel couldn't keep it. Israel failed to keep the law in the same way that Every one of us, if we were to try to live perfectly under the law, we would all stumble in many ways. But Christ fulfilled the law, and then in his death and resurrection, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and thereby, Ephesians 2.15, he abolished the law and gave to us a new deposit of instruction that we have in the New Testament. And as, as the author of Hebrews says, there's been a change in the priesthood, Christ has become the great high priest, and he's not from the tribe of Levi. And in Hebrews 7.12, the author of Hebrews says, where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So the high priesthood of Christ comes with a, a new law of Christ that is the code under which we live. And of course, the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare a place, and he will bring God's people into the place that he has prepared for them, God's place, that we might live in God's ways. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom through your word. I pray, Lord, for mothers and fathers who have to adjudicate cases between their children that they would have wisdom informed by your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to embrace this idea that discipline produces freedom. And I pray that you would enable us to discipline ourselves in our personal devotions, that we might be free to worship you. Help us to discipline ourselves in our stewardship of our bodies, that we might be free to live in a healthy way before you. Help us to discipline ourselves in our, our resistance of temptation, that we might be free to live in the righteous way. Lord, you are our Father. And the scriptures tell us that you discipline the children that you love. Lord, we pray that your word would make us wise, wise for situations that we will face in our various callings, things that we will deal with. Give us the wisdom of your word, Lord, that we might walk in holiness, that we might please you. And Father, teach us to trust you with the patterns and the days and the weeks and the months and the years of our lives. Teach us to, to worship you, to live for you, to love you with all our hearts, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, we thank you for Christ who redeems us from the curse of the law, who makes it so that though we fail to love you, though we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, 
we can be forgiven by you because of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this life-giving word. We pray that it would do its transforming work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.